on air, online, on digital, digital, and the ABC Listen app. The Country Hour with Tony Briscoe on ABC Radio Hobart and ABC Northern Tasmania. Coming up today, where to now for the Farmgate milk price? last 12 months has been a phenomenal year for dairying. It's been a great year um, from a climate point of view. We've grown lots of grass, had a lot of cheap feed, and we've had the best dairy price I've ever seen in my whole farming career. Because over the last five, ten years, we've actually probably been fairly behind a lot of livestock enterprises in terms of profitability. And pollution of a different type affecting the baby turtles. When we have an environment that's very light polluted, it becomes very difficult for these hatchlings to find the ocean. And every year we have situations where hatchlings are ending up in the parklands behind our beaches. They're getting predated by all sorts of different animals that really don't normally predate hatchlings. The light pollution affecting the turtles. That story coming up later in the program. And predictions about the Farmgate milk price coming up in just a moment. G'day, Tony, with you on this Friday. A little bit of rain about in some areas of the state. We'll check in with the Bureau at the halfway stage of the show, see what's uh, in store. Plus a story about the CSIRO working to take up to 70% of the sugar out of fruit juice drinks. Also, the comparison between the sea urchin problem we have here in Tasmania to that of a lionfish problem they have off the coast of Florida. That story coming up as well. And Richard Bailey with the wrap-up of yesterday's big sheep and lamb sale at Oatlands. He'll be in the program a little bit later on. And, of course, your thoughts on any issues via the text line 0438 is that number, 0438 Well, less than a week away from the National Dairy Conference planned for Hobart next Thursday and Farmgate milk prices are sure to take centre stage. Past year has been a record year in dairy in terms of milk prices. But as they say, what goes up must come down. Meg Powell caught up with senior analyst for Rabobank, Michael Harvey, in Elizabethtown to discuss the milk prices and the prospects for next season. We've got a really good situation for Australian dairy in the sense that we've got record high farm gate pricing that's obviously driving good on-farm profitability across most of the country, Tasmania included. There's been some challenges along the way with labour availability, some cost pressures in their business um, and of course, you know, unfavourable weather conditions in some parts of the country, you know, including Including parts of Tasmania. yeah. Yeah, but all in all, you know, it's a pretty strong footing, but a lot of dairy farmers in Tasmania and on mainland Australia will be starting to look to the new season which will formally get underway on July 1 but looking for price signals around milk price from June 1 when the companies announce their minimum price offers for next season so we you know we're looking at the fundamentals in the global market and seeing you know there is a, a reality that we are going to be starting on a lower base for next season based on where commodity markets are and that needs to be factored into what that might mean for milk price next season but that is also being offset by you know really strong domestic market returns coming through because what we've obviously seen is farm gate prices here in Australia jumped to record levels last year. A lot of that, a lot of the dairy companies have passed that through to consumers. So it's not great for consumers that they're paying a bit more for their dairy products, but it's about restoring margins in the supply chain. And those retail contracts, those domestic market returns are going to offset you know, a global market which is a little bit weaker. But the key message in all this from our perspective is that we do probably see a little bit of a, a little bit of a correction in milk price for farmers in you know southern australia from next season but it's you know all the price signals and all the forward indicators certainly point to a you know an elevated milk price still and one that we think will still be profitable so it's a, it's a positive story in the sense that 
now, things might come off a little bit in terms of farm gate milk price, but the, you know it's a really strong outlook, and we'll, we should see another season of good profitability. Could you just explain that a bit more? Yeah, so you know commodity markets for dairy. Uh, in March last year, we were at record levels for most products. If not, they were near record levels. And that's really what underpinned milk prices going to record levels in Australia at the start of the season that we're in. Uh, if you fast forward to where we are now, we've seen quite a sizable correction in, in those commodity prices. So depending on the product you're talking about, you, but you're looking at somewhere between 30% falls in, in commodity prices since that peak. So that comes into play when you think about, you know, a large volume of milk that is still produced in southern Australia, including Tasmania, that's, you know, bulk ingredients or export, export exposed. That's, that's a weaker base for the returns that we're going to get for that volume of milk. And that comes into play for milk prices for the new season. So that's part of the, you know, the discussion around where milk prices might go for next season. You were saying part of that is caused by the global market being fairly weak. That's right. And you, you unpack why that is. I mean, one... The first thing to note is, you know, China's been buying a lot less commodities this year than they were the previous year, and that, that matters because China are the largest importer of dairy products. When they're buying less milk from New Zealand, that frees up milk in the global market and puts downward pressure on prices. But the other thing that's interesting in all this is that we have we had a cycle where milk production across the export regions was really weak for a long period of time. Australia's a small part of that, but it's really about what's going on with milk production in New Zealand, Europe and the US. Uh, we had nearly 18 months where there was limited growth in production out of those regions. We, we've seen green shoots come through in terms of milk production is actually growing again in those export regions. So that adds to the pressure in the global market. And even more broadly, you know, you've got cost of living pressures, high inflation in most economies around the world. Um, that does lead to consumer response to that. Now, food always you know, outperforms other discretionary items, but you are seeing some softness in terms of dairy consumption in certain markets, particularly in emerging Asia. So that feeds through into the underlying fundamentals as well. So a bit more milk being produced in export regions, a little bit being consumed in emerging markets, and China buying less commodity milk means you get downward pressure on prices, and that's where we're at at the moment. Coffee shops is one place that we really saw a rise in milk prices. The, the price of coffee had to go up, which is you know, a big deal for consumers. Are you predicting that milk or other dairy products will go down? Well, that's a good question around food inflation. So, I mean, if you look at the Australian situation, you know, we, we had recent numbers come out from ABS. You know, food inflation in Australia was at uh, two-decade highs. It, it, the thing that's noticeable about the food inflation story is it's broad-based, so it's across everything. It's, it's across the dairy aisle, it's across the meat aisle, it's across packaged goods, and it's in fresh fresh produce, you know, fruit and vegetables. So that's the challenge in all this. You know, consumers are paying a lot more for all food, and that's both in the grocery channel but also in outer home. And that's part of the story here is, you know, there's a question, natural question around when do we see peak inflation, and we, we will see that eventually this year, but I think that... The biggest challenge still is the fact that the cost of living pressures in households is only going to get worse before it gets better because we know interest rates are still rising, you know, consumer confidence has fallen, uh, and even some of the household savings that we've built up through the pandemic have been run down. So it does point to a, you know, a tighter consumer market over the next 12 months, and that feeds through into you know, food purchasing decisions. I, thought, I mean, the other interesting one in all this is, is what does that consumer response actually look like? And, and like I said, you know, other discretionary items get hit harder than food, but there is there is belt tightening. And so consumers go through a journey where they'll, you know, look to prepare more meals at home as opposed to eating out. And even when they eat out, they might go to a casual dining or a quick service restaurant over a more expensive restaurant. 
but when they are eating at home, you know, they are looking to prepare meals cheaply. So they look at, you know, long life products, they look at easy preparation meals, but they do look to trade down. So they might, might look for, you know, private label products over branded products. They'll look for bulking product purchases and even shop at discounters. So that, that's all part of the consumer behavior that we're watching quite closely at the moment because, you know, the pressure on households is quite significant. Yeah, that's Rabobank Senior Analyst Michael Harvey talking there to Meg Powell about the year ahead for dairy. Not looking too bad, but maybe some market corrections after a record year, although we did see Fonterra raise the price of milk this week, 15 cents a litre for Fonterra suppliers. Now, Meg Powell, along with Fiona Breen, will be at the Dairy Conference for the Country Hour on Thursday and Friday next week from Rest Point to bring you the latest from the dairy industry few thousand people coming to uh, that particular conference, dairy farmers from around the country and people involved in the dairy industry. So we'll have the latest for you next week. Well, continuing with that theme and consumers may have taken a little hit with higher dairy prices last year, but what about the farmers? While Meg was at Elizabethtown, she also met Paul Bennett from Ashgrove. He told her what those prices as well as what being part of an ageing workforce have meant for dairy producers. We're at um, the Ashgrove Cheese Factory, um, Dairy Door, and uh, we've been asked to host a Rabobank information evening or session held by Rabobank where they've got a couple of industry experts and they've invited about 180 farmers to attend. One of the topics of tonight is dairy and dairy prices, which mm-hmm. you're pretty well placed to comment on here at uh, Ashgrove. Yes. What did you see over the last 12 months? Uh, last 12 months has been a phenomenal year for dairying. It's been a great year um, from a climate point of view, we've grown lots of grass, had a lot of cheap feed, and we've had the best dairy price I've ever seen in my whole farming career. Wow. Mm-hmm. And what did, uh, what impact did that have? Oh, it's had a phenomenal impact, I think, on most dairy farmers' income, because over the last um, five, ten years, we've actually probably been fairly behind a lot of livestock enterprises in terms of profitability. Um, I think we're number five on the livestock enterprise and profitability and number one for the amount of work required. <laughs> but this um, year, and to put it in perspective, is... Um, over the last few years, um, the highest price we've received in dairy is about the mid 40 cents, and most farmers at the moment are, you know, between 70 and the high 80 cents a litre for their milk. Do you reckon that will uh, entice more people to stay in the industry? We've saw, seen a lot of people drop off over time. Yeah, um, historically, um, there's been always people leaving the dairy industry. Farms have been consolidating, farms have been getting bigger. But I think it's at a really interesting point at the moment where nearly all the milk in the country is produced by men and women my age. And they're, they're, they're old, they're tired, oh. and they've uh, um, made their money. And uh, so even though we've seen the best climate for dairying, the best prices ever seen, we're still seeing the milk production fall. And I think it's a really critical time for the industry to consider how we get um, young people in or whatever over the long term because there's very few young farmers out there in the dairy industry. What What are the next 12 months looking like for you? Um, I think the next 12 months is really positive for the dairy industry. I think prices will ease a bit but the reality is there's such a shortage of milk in Australia and there's a lot of big international companies competing for that milk will keep prices up. Um, the other thing that's been really good to the dairy industry is most of us are fairly significant beef um, players, whether we believe it or not, because we're selling our chopper cows, our waste bulls, um, and those of us that are rearing dairy beef, um, the beef industry is really good. That's eased a bit, but the prices historically, um, the prices we're receiving now, even though it's eased, are really good on a historical basis here. Yeah. 
You did mention before young, getting young people into the industry is a big thing. What are some of the other challenges that you see coming up? Well, we've always got the same challenges. It's about um, labour, it's input costs, all of those things. But most of those we can manage and we can do things to make your farm more attractive. You can do things to give people a, a better class of job, as I call it, rather than just the basic job. So that's what we try, try and do on this farm. And it's agriculture. All those things will always come into it. So they're nothing new. They're just something we deal with every year. Esgrove Chair and Farm Manager Paul Bennett talking to Meg Powell again, saying prices last year were the highest he'd ever seen, which had a phenomenal impact on dairy farmers' incomes. But that problem of the ageing workforce still rears its head again. Coming up on the country air in just a moment, trying to take the sugar, up to 70% of sugar, out of fruit juice. This week on Landline, devastation in WA's Kimberley region, rebuilding in central New South Wales and the upside of flooding, revived wetlands for birds. feels very special, I think, when you come into these places and, you know, we have sort of between 30 and 50,000 breeding pairs in here. You're maybe the only person that these birds have seen so far. That's Landline Sunday 12.30 on ABC TV and streaming on ABC iView. Coast to Coast, this is the Country Hour with Tony Briscoe on ABC Radio Hobart and ABC Northern Tasmania. Well, the CSIRO is working on bringing down the natural sugar content of fruit juice drinks by around 70%. It's a big relief to citrus growers who were shocked by a review of Australia's health star rating system that gave fruit juice a worse rating than diet cola. Now, the citrus industry wants the whole health star rating system scuttled, as Tina Quinn reports. Sugar is a major health problem here in Australia, seen as a leading contributor to a number of diseases, including obesity and diabetes. And what we see in Australia is that half of Australians are consuming more free sugar than the recommended daily amount. But actually, people want to consume less. It's just not that easy. Gemma Howes from the CSIRO is currently working on a project to reduce the natural sugar content of fruit juices. So if I take an example, like a single bottle of juice that's quite commonly available, um, it may not have any added sugar, but it can still have up to 10 teaspoons of naturally occurring sugar. And I think that's where people are often very surprised when they hear this. So I think that's why when we saw the opportunity and this research, I guess it's just incredible that we found a way that we can actually significantly reduce the sugar content of juice through a natural process. So that means there's no additives, there's no sweeteners involved, and you're able to get the nutritional benefit of juice without as much sugar. Two years ago, food regulators had reduced the five-star rating of fruit juice to just two stars, meaning it ranked as less healthy than diet cola. It came as a huge blow to fruit juice producers who contribute almost three quarters of a billion dollars to Australia's economy. Obviously the industry is extremely disappointed with the health star rating and we don't hold any faith in the health star rating at all to be honest. The focus you know, on one element of a product's nutritional value is not useful for anyone and this is meant to be a communication tool to the community. It's been hijacked by anti-sugar people and I think it's um, a real disappointment for our industry and many other industries who face skewed responses to the health stars that are applied to them. Um, And I think it's, you know, bureaucracy gone mad, to be honest. Citrus Australia Chief Executive Nathan Hancock argues that the nutritional benefits of fruit juice 
far outweighs the concerns around its high sugar content. The fact still remains that a freshly squeezed orange or mandarin or uh, any other citrus type that um, people are consuming contains a bevy of nutritional value that is being disregarded and we'll be soon be releasing through Horn Innovation funded research some information on the fantastic nutritional benefits that uh, come from citrus that far outweigh any concerns that people should have about sugar. Many dietitians would agree with you and in fact did when this new health star rating came down on, on, on fruit juices two years ago. Uh, but many others, including Syro, say that the overconsumption of sugar is a leading contributor to the burden of chronic disease globally. Can you understand Syro's point here? Can you understand why they have concerns about the level of sugar in, in fruit juices? All right. Absolutely, I can see their point, but I think that that the focus is on a natural product such as juice when when we all know that sugar is hidden in so many products and and there are so many benefits and long long term studies that have shown um, increases in mental health, positive outcomes for people who are pregnant, the absolutely zero connection to obesity and all of these other things that are, are we're lumped into when people talk about sugar. Natural 100% orange juice, and I'm not talking about fruit drinks or um, reconstituted um, juices. I'm talking about 100% natural orange juice that you buy in a fresh shelf at your retailer, uh, made in Australia with 100% Australian oranges, is a unique product. When consumed in a in in moderation, just like consuming anything else in moderation, has a lot of health benefits for you. And I think the focus that the health star rating brings to these products is is misguided. And I think it, um, it's well and truly time that that actual system is actually reviewed and scuttled. CSIRO's newly developed technology converts the naturally occurring sugar in fruit juice into complex carbohydrates like fibre, therefore reducing the sugar content by up to 70%. But Gemma Howes assures us that the nutritional benefits provided by natural sugar won't be lost. So I think in terms of the kind of nutritional profile, vitamins, things like fibre, that's what we've been able to manage to maintain. And I think it's really the opportunity here is how do we reduce that excess sugar consumption in people's diets? And this is one way that hopefully can help. So could this actually restore the five-star health rating for fruit juices? So that is definitely an ambition that we have. So we've got to work through that as part of um, product optimization and the research. But yes, given that the health star rating looks at um, sugar levels within the calculation, there should be an improvement. How far off are we from seeing this research implemented on, on supermarket shelves? So the research is definitely in progress. So we've made great progress so far, but it's still... There's still optimization work that we're working on. Um, but we've just, I think the project team has made it onto On Accelerate, which is the CSIRO's accelerator program. So I think the accelerator program will help us as we start to explore how do we bring this to market as well. While it will still be some time before low sugar juice hits supermarket shelves, the On Accelerate program will give the project a clear path to commercialization. Tina Quinn ending that report on the move to take some of the sugar content out of fruit juice drinks by up to 70% by the CSIRO. Well, the carbon economy will be a key part of the Evoke Ag Conference in Adelaide in a couple of weeks. The event is one of the Asia-Pacific region's largest agri-food tech events. This year will be the first time it's held in Adelaide. AgriFutures Managing Director John Harvey says it brings together farmers, researchers, government and investors to look at how to feed the world into the future. 
The last two times that we've done it, in 2019 and 2020, we were in Melbourne. Uh, we had enormous interest from a whole range of states. But at the end of the day, what attracted us to Adelaide was the enthusiasm of people in South Australia to look at innovation and technology, and also the links with the space industry and space R&D that's happening in Adelaide and in South Australia. There's lots of synergies between space and uh, earth imaging, which have big applications in agriculture. So we thought that was a very, very nice link to Evoke Ag. And the theme is down to earth. What's behind that? Yeah, there's a few things behind it. The first one is, yes, that link to space and really looking at how we use some of the space technologies in agriculture and what are some of the spin-offs from that research and innovation. But the second one is we, we are looking at innovation and we're looking at new ideas and we're looking at the future. But at the end of the day, it's got to come down to earth. It's got to be something real that you can do on your farm. So we really want to emphasise throughout the two days, not just, you know, exciting new innovation. We want to emphasise, well, how's it going to make a difference on a farm? How's it going to make a farmer more money? How's it going to make it more sustainable? So that's also a bit of a link that we're trying to run into that theme. Can you take me through some of the programs and sections of Vocag and how it tailors to those different areas of the industry? Yeah, so I mean a couple of things. First one is we the world has changed just dramatically and enormously over the last two years um, with COVID in particular, but we've also had an, a big shift in the geopolitical landscape and we've also seen some real disruption to supply chains. So one of the issues that we will be discussing and debating is in our plenary session where we'll have over 1,500 people is what's the impact on Australian agriculture? What's the implications for innovation? What's the research what's the innovation we need in this new environment. Um, we're also seeing um, a, a big focus on, green, on the green economy, on the carbon economy. Um, and farmers, because they manage the land, they're in an incredibly powerful position um, to look at the opportunities that, that exist in the carbon market. And frankly, lots of opportunities, but also some real risks. And I think understanding those and being really upfront with, with the, some of those risks is going to be just an, as important when we start talking about things like you know, green economy and, and carbon and how agriculture can play a role in that space. And speaking of agricultural investments, research over the years has shown that while China is investing heavily, particularly in ag tech, Australia seems to be holding its position. The US is uh, going backwards in terms of how much money it's putting into its agriculture. How much of an effect will these sorts of um, bigger picture things play out in the ag tech space and into the future? And how do events like Evoke Ag work with that to ensure that Australia remains relevant and cutting edge because it has been a cutting edge country for many years in the ag tech space? So a couple of things. First thing is uh, the the investment in ag tech globally has actually been growing very rapidly. So... Um, about seven years ago, it was about $2 billion in a year. In uh, 2021, the total investment was about nearly $73 billion going to agri-food tech globally, and about 50% of that is happening in the US. Um, we, uh, in Australia, we, we are uh, quite a bit smaller. So in 2019, when we first ran the first Evoke Ag, the total investment in agri-food tech in Australia was about $23 million. In 2020... One year later, that had increased to just under 100 mil. And last year, um, the investment in agri-food tech here in Australia was 
uh, $550 million. So you can see a rapid increase in the investment from the private sector in some of these technologies. And a lot of that's been driven around need to feed the world, the need for more protein uh, and issues associated with carbon and the green economy. It's been sometimes described as almost a bubble, the amount of money that's going into ag tech. Do you think there is anything in that or is there a very strong demand coming through? You're seeing both. I think in some areas we will see that we, we've ended up with overinvestment, overpromising. But in other areas, I think there's a very, very real market that will evolve over time. But clearly, uh, if you look at the capital market, and that they are voting with their dollars and uh, seeing agri-food tech as a great place to invest. And one of the things about Evoke Ag is that connection and that building those collaborations with other overseas countries. So we'll, we'll have trade missions from eight countries coming to Evoke Ag, both bringing with them ideas and technologies that they might like to commercialise in Australia, but also shining a spotlight on our fantastic innovation that's happening here. And they will be looking at whether there's stuff here that they can actually take back into their markets. Yeah, that's AgriFutures Managing Director John Harvey speaking to Cassie Huff about the Evoke Ag Conference, which will be held in Adelaide in a couple of weeks. We'll have some coverage of that event for you and as well the coverage of the big dairy conference here in Hobart next week, next Thursday and Friday. Meg Powell and Fiona Breen will be at that conference uh, having a broadcast uh, of the program on Thursday and we'll be crossing back to the conference on the Friday. Now, coming up on the country are the invasive fish causing problems in the US, similar to the sea urchin problem here. And Richard Bailey with all the livestock markets, including details of the big sheep and lamb sale at Oatlands yesterday. First up, though, the news headlines with Michael Dallafontana. Thank you, Tony. Deputy Liberal Leader Susan Lee says she always wants to see more women in federal parliament following the resignation of Alan Tudge. Mr Tudge holds the Victorian seat of Aston, which was a safe Liberal seat but is now marginal. The Liberals are in discussions about who their candidate should be for the upcoming by-election and some are urging the party to choose a female to improve gender representation. Businessman Clive Palmer says he was surprised by the federal government's decision to block his coal mine proposal in central Queensland. Federal Environment Minister Tanya Plibersek rejected the billionaire's bid to build an open-cut coal mine near Rockhampton earlier this week, arguing it would have unacceptable impacts on the Great Barrier Reef. And it'll soon be illegal to smoke cannabis on the street in Amsterdam's red light district under new regulations unveiled by the city. The city council has also banned new visitors from entering the district after 1am. Sex workers have been ordered to close their venues at 3am. More news at one o'clock. Time now to check the latest on the weather. Brooke Oakley joins us from the Bureau. Hello, Brooke. Good afternoon, Tony. Well, some, uh, some heavy rainfall in parts of the state at the moment. That's right, particularly in the northeast of the state. We have some very slow-moving thunderstorms that are producing heavy rainfall and St Helens has received 25 millimetres of rain in the last 30 minutes, which is part of uh, the 32 millimetres since 9am this morning. There is a severe thunderstorm warning current for heavy rainfall for the northeast and the east coast forecast districts and those thunderstorms are likely to persist for much of this afternoon and possibly into the early evening. That is That severe thunderstorm warning is the only warning for today or tomorrow. There are no coastal wind warnings. In terms of rainfall totals in the 24 hours to 9am this morning, the highest was St Patrick's Head at 29 millimetres, followed by Tunnock with 17 millimetres, 
and also Nugent with 17 millimetres. We are expecting for today that the showers that are currently over most of Tasmania will contract to the east coast in the evening and thunderstorms are possible for most of Tasmania this afternoon with those possible heavy falls in the northeast of the state. As we head into the evening, the showers will contract to the east coast and then tomorrow it will be cloudy in the east and south with possible drizzle during the morning and early afternoon as we see east to southeasterly winds pushing moisture onshore. There will also be some patchy morning fog. Otherwise, it's fine apart from possible afternoon showers and thunderstorms about inland areas. And then on Sunday, there is a cool southwesterly change that will flush out all the moisture and the unstable air mass currently over Tasmania. So for Sunday, there will be some showers about the north and west, extending over southern and eastern areas during the day before contracting to the southwest and the northeast in the evening. And also possible afternoon thunderstorms about the northeast. So Saturday is going to be the warmest day. It starts to get a bit cooler on Sunday and Monday because of that cool change moving through on Sunday. And then from Monday onwards, we see a return to more settled weather with ridge-dominated conditions. So on Monday, fine apart from light showers about the west and the chance of showers in the northeast. And then on Tuesday, showers about the west and far south, clearing during the afternoon and fine elsewhere apart from the chance of showers in the northeast. And temperatures next week will rebound quite quickly after the cool change on Sunday. And it will be warm on Thursday and Friday with maximum temperatures reaching the high 20s to the low 30s. Okay. Now with those uh, current thunderstorms on the east coast, is hail a part of that or lightning? Uh, Lightning, yes, with the thunderstorms. At this stage, they're only severe due to possible heavy rainfall that could lead to flash flooding. If there is any hail, it's likely to be small hail as opposed to large hail. Okay, and that's the only warning uh, you say? That is the only warning current, and it is possible that through the afternoon that warning area could be adjusted as we see further storms form, but at this stage the severe thunderstorms are unlikely to affect Launceston. Okay. Now the boats are out on the water as part of the regatta, the sail past at the moment. Uh, What about the coastal waters and swell? What can we expect over the weekend? Pretty benign on the coastal waters. For today we have northeast to southeasterly winds at 10 to 20 knots. And then tomorrow, east to southeasterly winds at 10 to 20 knots, tending east to northeasterly during the afternoon, and then shifting westerly at 15 to 20 knots about the northwest in the evening. And winds are variable below 10 knots about the central west. The swells for today and tomorrow in the west and south are south to southwesterly of one to one and a half metres. And the wave rider buoy at Cape Sorrel is currently reading 1.4 metres. In the north, northeasterly to around one metre, and in the east, northeasterly of one to one and a half metres, and also a southerly to around one metre. And the wave rider buoy at Mariah Island is currently reading exactly one metre. Terrific. Thanks, Brooke. Thanks, Tony. See you later, Brooke Oakley from the Bureau with all the information for you. Greg uh, from Devonport on the text line says, Hi, Tony, it's not bureaucracy gone mad. Ray, orange juice, if you really want to get the goodness of oranges, eat the Australian raw product every day. Thank you for that, Greg. 0438 at least, 92936 is that text line number, 0438 92936. In just a moment, we'll introduce you to the lionfish.
The quest for the big brass mug continues on the new season of Harquiz, award-winning comedian Tom Gleeson is throwing down the gauntlet to some new contestants. You made that sound really creepy. And challenging some more unusual expert subjects. Just when you thought things wouldn't get weirder, Sam, colonoscopies is your expert. The new season of Hard Quiz. Nothing's weird on this show, mate. Wednesday nights on ABC TV and streaming on ABC iView. It's the Country Hour with Tony Briscoe on ABC Radio Hobart and ABC Northern Tasmania. Now, Richard Bailey along shortly with details of that uh, sale at Oatlands yesterday. Well, as marine experts in Tasmania formulate the plan to combat the spread of the longspine sea urchin, across the globe a different type of invasive pest, at least, is making life hard for scientists in waters off America. Marine ecologist from the US, Ali Candelmo, was in Launceston recently for the two-day workshop on the sea urchin problem and spoke to the gathering about a very attractive but dangerous fish causing similar problems for the Reef Environmental Education Foundation. The organization's based out of Florida. Lionfish have invaded throughout the tropical western Atlantic, so from Bermuda down to Brazil, um, and also now in the devil firefishes in the Mediterranean. Um, and the densities in the invaded range get somewhat upwards of 10 times higher than in their native range. And because they are voracious predators, they will wipe out native fish populations pretty heavily if their populations remain unchecked. And what has the main approach been to, to tackling the issue? So to date, the most effective approach is divers on scuba using pole spears to remove lionfish, you know, one by one. And so that's through both commercial diving programs where they can sell them through to the market and then also recreational diving programs and uh, lionfish tournaments or challenges that sort of incentivize the removal. Yeah. So how much commercial value has there been in, in the fishing of lionfish then? They are toted as you know delicious to eat and they're you know a culinary delicacy so we're trying to push them as like a premium product and there is a commercial market for them and the biggest challenge is actually meeting that demand often the you know the populations ebb and flow they're difficult to catch you have to dive deep you know they are venomous and so having divers be able to keep up with that demand and then maintain that market is difficult Yeah, so do divers have to be specially trained to get lionfish as compared to other um, species? Um, You just have to avoid touching the venomous spines. So there are containers that people use to put them inside. I mean, a lot of commercial divers that were already spearing other fish just picked it up pretty quickly. But recreational divers that weren't spear fishermen needed to be trained on how to handle a spear, how to handle lionfish, you know. But once you pull it up, you know, you can fillet the fish like any other fish. Just avoid the spines and eat it. Um, just like any other fish. And you, in your um, talk, talked a bit about government policy change. How important was that to getting the job done? Yeah, it was extremely important because really the only effective way of removing them is via scuba with the spear. You can do some um, snorkeling or free diving, but they're usually too deep for that. Um, and a lot of jurisdictions throughout the evaded range don't allow spear fishing on scuba. So that was really the primary regulation that needed to be changed. There needed to be special licenses and special spears created that like allowed for that fisheries to occur. And obviously we have the problem with the longspine sea urchin here. What could we learn from your practices over there? Um, I do think uh, sort of some uh, collaborative approach that 
allows for the commercial market to expand, but then brings in recreational divers to potentially remove urchins in areas that commercial divers aren't going or don't want to go or the the urchins aren't really viable there. Um, And then also marine protected areas where commercial divers won't be allowed to fish. Um, That could be a nice kind of collaborative approach. Plus the community involvement really brings up, brings the attention of the problem to the media. Often you can use derby events to attract the media and then bring other funding sources through from local sponsors, you know, And so that helps kind of forge the management effort as well. I'll let you get back to the conference. But first, is there anything else you'd like to add? No, this has been a great conference. I really appreciate being invited. I've learned a lot, but there are a lot of parallels between the two. So I'm happy to give my wisdom on how to run an urchin derby in the future. (laughs) I'd love to see Tasmania for that. (laughs) Your new job. Yes, for sure. It could be a new festival on the East Coast, an urchin derby. US marine ecologist Ali Condelmo talking there to Madeleine Rojan about the problems the lionfish is causing in waters off the coast of Florida. Similar issue to the sea urchin problem we have on the southeast Australian waters, especially the waters off Tasmania. Well, the barramundi now, and researchers say a new genetic test will protect the Australian barramundi industry from an exotic virus which can kill 50 to 100% of infected fish. Dr Joy Becker, an associate professor with the University of Sydney, is part of an international team that's developed a single testing method that can identify all three variants of infectious spleen and kidney necrosis virus. The third variant is an emerging pathogen that's causing the fish deaths in barramundi farms in Southeast Asia. Dr Becker has told Kim Honan the test still has to be validated by authorities, but she's confident the new test will keep the deadly virus out of the country. So ISKNV has been known for, for several decades now. It has three very closely related variants of the virus, and that's where some of the confusion has come in in the past few decades because we're seeing the virus expand into new areas geographically, but then also new fish hosts. And those are impacting both aquaculture as well as wild fisheries. With ISKNV, we do consider it what we call a high mortality disease. So when there is an outbreak or an epidemic, we will see mortality levels um, above 50%, if not up to 100%. Wow. And is that mainly in barramundi farmed or, or wild stocks? Well, one of the concerns with this virus in particular is that it crosses that freshwater marine water barrier. So we do see infections in fish species like barramundi and grouper that are typically marine. Um, but with barramundi, we also see infections in freshwater. And with this virus, we also see infections in not just food fish, but also our pet fish and um, wild fisheries. So things that we do know that are highly susceptible are things like Murray cod, as well as many of our ornamental pet fish um, we keep. And what about the eastern cod? Is that Uh, a species that uh, could be at risk? It's possible. We don't have information specific about that species, um, but there are a number of other um, temperate and tropical freshwater and marine species that are susceptible. So, for instance, Australian bass is another species that is susceptible. And so this third uh, variant, the emerging pathogen, what sort of impact is it already having on fish stocks uh, outside Australia, say in Southeast Asia? 
Well, the TRBIV variant, originally it was just found to affect um, flatfish in Asia. However, what we're seeing recently is it's moving into other species. And in 2017, there was a very big mortality event um, in Barramundi, in farm Barramundi in Taiwan. So we have been able to see this virus move into different host species. We've also done, um, there's been previous published work looking at retrospective analysis where they've tested material that's been archived for many decades and they're beginning to find this variant in um, ornamental or pet fish species from um, both the 1990s. So it has been circulating, but it's been somewhat under the radar until very recently. So this ISKNV has not been in, found in Australia to date? It's still considered an exotic virus here in Australia. There's been a one incursion in particular in about 2003 at a Murray cod farm, but then that was completely um, decontaminated and contained. There's been one additional detection uh, at a farm in Queensland um, about 2014 or 2015, which was also contained. The other issue is that we've previously detected the virus. And when I say we detect the virus, we just detect the DNA. So we don't actually know if that virus is um, infectious, mm. but we can detect it quite frequently um, in pet fish that are purchased at retail shops or are coming in from overseas. What we don't know is if those fish are actually infectious to others. That's actually one of the big next questions for us to answer. So you're hoping that this new diagnostic test will actually keep this virus out of the country and protect um, you know, industries such as the Barramundi and Murray Cod? Absolutely. So that, that's the goal, is to continue to keep um, Australia exotic to this virus because it would have a very severe and substantial impact on our wild fisheries as well as our aquaculture industries. That's Dr Joy Becker from University of Sydney talking there to Kim Honan about a new genetic test that will protect the Australian barramundi industry. Now, you heard us talk uh, in the weather before about the and the rain in the St Helens area, so St Helens and Surrounds. A flood watching act has been issued for St Helens and Surrounds by the Tasmanian SES Bureau has issued a severe thunderstorm warning for parts of the northeast and east coast forecast districts and the heavy rain currently falling in the St Helens area. Uh, locations mainly impacted are St Helens and surrounds. Obviously avoid flooded areas, flooding likely in streams and rivers. Some properties may become isolated or inundated and evacuation some of some properties may be required. Uh, the SES says if you have a flood emergency plan, use it now in the St Helens and district area. Prepare your property for any water, placing furniture and possessions up high, move livestock and equipment to higher ground and prepare your emergency kit. And if you need any uh, help from the SES, that number to ring is 132500, 132500. Just repeating, the SES has issued a flood watching act for St Helens and the surrounds. Coast to Coast, this is the Country Hour with Tony Briscoe on ABC Radio Hobart and ABC Northern Tasmania. Now to a good news story about Australia's sea turtles that coastal communities can take heart from. A record number of endangered loggerhead turtle nests have been laid on a popular Sunshine Coast beach after simple budget-friendly changes were made to modify lights. As Jennifer Nichols reports, those lights were repelling nestling turtles and luring hatchlings to their death. It was a tough situation for an endangered species. Light pollution had increased from street lights, high-rise buildings and the headlights of parked cars at Bedina's Point Cartwright lookout. 
Turtles prefer to nest on dark beaches. As Sunshine Coast Regional Council Conservation Officer Kate Hofmeister explains, bright white light is bad news for their hatchlings, luring some of them to their deaths. Now, when we have an environment that's very light polluted, it becomes very difficult for these hatchlings to find the ocean. And every year we have situations where hatchlings are ending up in the parklands behind our beaches. They're getting predated by all sorts of different animals that really don't normally predate hatchlings. So animals like ibis picking up hatchlings. Bright white lights rich in blue and green wavelengths scatter in the atmosphere and are the biggest cause of light pollution. To restore the dark beach that sea turtles prefer, Council installed motion-activated street lighting, light shields, timers, switched out the white lights for amber and red bulbs and put up signs in the lookout car park asking drivers to switch off their headlights. And while the turtle breeding cycles do vary over the years, Ms Hofmeister believes that the lighting has made a big difference. I do think that we have seen a visual change in the light pollution levels that are coming from the Bedina and Point Cartwright areas. And at Bedina this year, walking the beach, as compared to several years ago, you can see a noticeable difference. And that relates partially to some of the council infrastructure that we've changed out. It relates partially to the amazing body corporates along the Point Cartwright headland that have done huge works to their buildings to reduce the light that is coming from those buildings. But it also relates to the everyday mum and dads, grandmas and grandpas that are living through Bedina, that are turning off their outside lights at eight o'clock. You know, really prioritise how they're behaving with light in their own property because they know that it affects the survivorship of our hatchlings. Ms Hofmeister coordinates the Turtle Care Program, working with a committed team of trained volunteers who walk the beaches to find and protect nests and hatchlings. They've been excited to see the turtles respond to having a darker beach. A record 36 endangered loggerhead turtle clutches have been recorded on Bedina Beach so far this nesting season. Two of those were laid last night. So I do think it's made a big difference. You know, certainly we're collecting scientific data that is supporting that hypothesis at this point and we will continue to do that until we have, you know, enough information to draw those really solid conclusions that we're seeing a big difference and that it's helping the turtles. Ms Hofmeister says that human safety isn't compromised by turtle-friendly red and amber motion-activated street lighting. If a person walks through that area, the light will turn on when they're within about 100 metres of the luminaire or the light and then it switches off in a designated period shortly afterwards. The changes also save ratepayers money in lighting bills. No need for a compromise in trying to protect the environment, protect your yourself and uh, also put some money back in your wallet. Astronomist and university lecturer Dr Ken Wishaw is a passionate member of the Australasian Dark Sky Alliance committed to trying to reduce light pollution. He convinced the body corporate in his 11-storey high-rise Maroochydaw complex to switch to environmentally friendly lighting. It cost $16,000 over 12 months to swap out and modify the building's external and basement lights, resulting in a 90% decrease in light pollution and impressive power bill savings. 
we saw $1,100 a month saving in electricity, which paid off the entire project in about 14 months. Dr Wishaw says choosing lights with an orange glow is also better for the circadian rhythm of humans, biological variations or patterns with a cycle of approximately 24 hours that impacts sleep and people's health. And this is one of these lovely kind of environmental projects where everything wins. If the wildlife wins, we win and the wallet wins. Astronomist Dr Ken Winshaw ending that report from Jennifer Nichols on fighting the light pollution affecting the local turtle hatchlings. And more of that story online. Well, Friday afternoon, time to head out to the livestock markets and check the prices with Richard Bailey. How are you, Richard? Going well, Tony. Did Going it, well. Did it take yep. you two hours to get to Oatlands yesterday? Just shy. <laughs> Well done. Well no, done. that's all right. It'll be good when it's finished. Yeah, uh, and I gave myself plenty of time, so it was just a good little, good little, good little cruise down the highway. Okay. Well, um, let's start with lamb and sheep today, eh? Because of Oatlands, um, how was it? Yeah, we had uh, six thousand seven hundred and forty-one sheep and lambs. About six thousand of those were lambs. Um, the tops of the lambs sold pretty well, but um, the lambs that copped it were. The border cross ewe lambs, the, the bottoms of those were very cheap. Um, and I, I, I really struggle to understand why, given, you know, everything else that's going on. There's, there's, you know, there's a bit of positivity around the lamb market. We started with a one-year-old border cross ewes. Uh, they made $190 to $205. Um, the, the border cross ewe lambs, 120 to 200, so there's a big gap there. You know, the real, the best of them up to 200, but a lot of them 120 to $140. And then the smaller ones, 55 to $110. The crossbred lambs, um, 100 to 148. There, there wasn't a lot of weight in these lambs, you know, there were, apart from a few MK lambs that the processors bought, processors didn't need to step into the top end of these crossbred lambs, which quite often they do. Um, smaller crossbreds, uh, 70 to 120. Those sort of figures, that those two lots of figures are around about where the store lamb's been for, store lamb job's been for a few months now. And very small, 36 to $80 a head. There were a few merino weathers that made 68 to 84 and merino ewe 68 to 80. Most of the older sheep were bought by processors. Just while on a sheep and lamb, I just thought it was interesting, um, JBS have opened up their Cobram Works, which is up on the on the Murray. Yep. That they closed about the same time as they closed their smalls floor at Longford uh, back in 2017. They've re- they've uh, I believe they've gutted it and well they've spent 20 million on it, so they they've done a fair job. Um, the the reason I bring it up is that I think it shows that um, when one of the big boys decides to do that, that there must be some good confidence around the lamb industry. They'll kill lambs, mutton and goats uh, that works. And when it's up and running, it'll do around about 4,000 a day, which so it's not it's not to be sneezed at. It'll take a while to get up to that. but um, so that's and, and that will affect our, our job here. You know, there'll be already we've seen um, a mutton buyer trying to buy for, for that works uh, in the market already. So we'll see some positivity. But I think just from an outsider looking in, to me, the most positive thing is that it shows that there is some um, ongoing confidence in particularly the lamb job. Yeah, and good for Cobram too uh, with the workforce there. Uh, you know, they, they need hundreds of workers. So it's, it's a really good story, good news story. 
Yeah, it is. It's a matter of how quickly they can get them on board and train them up. You know, you can't just find people off the street to go and work in an abattoir. I mean, it's a, it's, a lot of it is skilled work. Um, and so that'll take a little bit of time to get that up and running. Um, I'm led to believe it. You know, you're looking at some months before it gets yep. into a really big swing, but um, good news all around there. Okay, now, uh, lamb and sheep on the mainland, uh, what, what's the story there? A little bit cheaper. Started on at Benigo, Ballarat and Hamilton in Victoria, uh, sort of around 5 6 $7 cheaper. And then at, uh, at Wagga yesterday, uh, there were uh, about 30,000, 34,000 lambs, and it was just a little bit cheaper, four to five to ten cheaper, but the better lambs still sold very, very well, averaging sort of 780 to 810 cents a kilo. It means that those very heavy lambs are making close to $300, and then your heavy, other rest of your heavy lambs are anywhere from sort of 210 to $240 a head. So, um, you know ticking along pretty well. I think the consensus is talking to everyone yesterday is that we will we will get a bit of a... We've been talking about a backlog of the lamb job for a while, but it's got to come sooner or later. It's just a matter of... Uh, if you look at the kill figures, most of the kill figures, the lamb kill figures, are up 30 and 40% on this time last year, and that's a fair heap. So it's a matter of, you know... Um, where we get to. I think there's a, a thought that maybe during April, I think there might be three short weeks, that that might put a bit of pressure on the kill uh, spaces. But look, it's going along pretty well. Mutton job's improving um, over the last three weeks. It's improved and it improved another 6 to $10 yesterday and earlier in the week as well. It meant that a lot of your sheep are now averaging between 350 and 400 cents a kilo which is getting close to 100 cents a kilo more than we were sort of just after Christmas. Okay. Now, a wrap on the cattle market. Um, cattle market's just improved. The interstate markets are just improving slightly. Um, you know, we've had a bit of a uh, correction over the last couple of months, I suppose, but they're just improving slightly. Um, a few more sort of good quality vealers making over 400 cents. A lot of a lot of the yearlings that were making sort of 340, 350 cents a kilo are now making 370, 380 cents, so that's good news. Um, cow market uh, has just improved a little bit, a lot more averages around that 300 cents, depending a little bit about where you were. Um, uh, better prices up north than, than southern Victoria, but still, um, you know, anywhere from sort of five to ten cents better. And grown steers the same, so that export job's just a little bit better. The general feeling around the traps at the moment is that we're going to have a fair heap of cattle around us for a few months, and it's a matter of whether or not the processing sector can handle them. Um, that's going to be the the next little. Uh, a little interesting question we have to ask, but uh, we'll wait on see, and see on that one, I think. Next week at uh, Piranha, we've got the uh, February store sale. At the moment, there are about 1,500 cattle advised, which would indicate to me that we'll end up somewhere between 1,500 and 1,700 cattle. Look to me, looking at the sheets, they look like there's some pretty good lines of cattle there. So if you're looking for store cattle, pretty good place to be. All right, Richard, you have a great weekend. Good on you, Tony. Yeah, and Richard Bailey will be back on the country our next Wednesday to check the latest Power Runner sale. Just before we go, Gil, on the text line says, On light and turtles, on a dark night, no moon, the hatchlings were all going in every direction. We all ran down with our phones and directed them with the beams into the water. Just the best feeling. Good on you, Gil. Thank you for that. Lovely to get a text like that. Fantastic.
And uh, that is our program for the week. Don't forget ABC Rural Online and ABC Rural Facebook page where you'll see plenty of great stories. Have a happy and safe weekend and we will catch you after midday on Monday.